Hello, friends. Welcome to Resting Church Face, a podcast. I am your host, Amanda Allen, and this is episode 21. And this week, we are continuing our series on the movies that shaped me with a movie that was released by Disney in 1986 called Flight of the Navigator. So sit back, relax, Think about the 80s and how it was the height of fashion for girls to wear dangly earrings, but only in one ear. And let's get started. So we've talked about how Luke Skywalker was my first movie crush, but my second movie crush was definitely Joey Kramer who was the star of Flight of the Navigator. Flight of the Navigator was released on August 1st, 1986. I was six years old. And I don't remember if we went to see this in the movies when it came out, but I do remember seeing the trailer for it on TV. There's a big moment in the movie where Max, the extraterrestrial computer, gets right in David's face, which is played by Joey Kramer. And he says, you are the navigator. And I remember that part, like, I remember it clearly, seeing that on TV and being like, ooh, that's cool. But I remember watching this movie over and over. I believe that we had it on VHS at some point, but I know that whenever we were in a hotel room or we got to a place that had the Disney Channel, if this movie was playing, I was parked in front of the TV. I loved it so much. So this movie has a really good cast. Joey Kramer, of course, plays the main character, David Freeman. The voice of Max, the extraterrestrial robot, is played by Paul Rubens. And I remember watching this movie and thinking, you know, this robot sounds a whole lot like Pee Wee Herman. And of course, I didn't realize that Paul Rubens is Pee Wee Herman. (laughs) But I almost feel like this movie was kind of him testing out the Pee Wee Herman character. Uh, David's mother, Helen Freeman, is played by Veronica Cartwright. The father, Bill Freeman, played by Cliff DeYoung. Carolyn McAdams is played by Sarah Jessica Parker in one of her very first movie roles. She's about 20, 21 years old in this movie. Jeff Freeman at 16 years old is played by Matt Adler. And then Jeff Freeman at eight years old is played by Albie Whitaker. And then the main villain of the movie, Howard Hesseman, um, is the actor. He plays Dr. Louis Faraday. And Howard Hesseman is also the main character in the show WKRP in Cincinnati, which I was almost too young to really remember this show, but I do remember watching it a little bit. I remember Lonnie Anderson being in it, and I remember the theme song, just the WKRP in Cincinnati, something like that. But he is the main, you know, villain of the movie. And while I was doing some background research for this movie, I found out that it was the first to do a couple of things. One, it was one of the first films that employed CGI kind of the way that we use it today in the very beginning stages with computer animation and green screens and all of those kind of things. In fact, James Cameron talks about this movie because he thought that the spaceship with all of the chrome in it was so cool that he used part of that technology when he was creating his Terminator villains, the robots. So that's kind of cool. And then it was also the first film to be completely scored with a synthesizer, (laughs) which makes it like an ultimate 80s movie because it is all synthesized music. But it is cool. It it fits the movie. While I was rewatching the film, I was surprised at how short it is. It's exactly 90 minutes, which nowadays seems short. I think we're all so used to these like marathon movies of like over two hours that an actual hour and a half movie makes us go, oh, how refreshing. But the other thing that I also noticed is that the language in this movie is a little spicier 
than what I think a PG movie today would contain. And I have noticed that with a lot of other 80s movies as I've rewatched some of them, like Back to the Future and Space Camp. I think that their gauge for curse words it was a little bit lower <laughs> than what it would be today, which, you know, it's one of the only things that is probably less conservative <laughs> from the 80s is uh, some of their language. Not terrible, but, you know, just a little bit more. But all in all, as I rewatch the movie, it really holds up. It's a good story. It's it's not too long. It's pretty kid-friendly as far as the story goes. Like I said, a few curse words here and there. But just really enjoyable, and I really enjoyed watching it. So let's dive in, and let's talk a little bit about the plot. And then I want to talk about some of the after stories, because there's also a documentary that I watched about Flight of the Navigator that was also fascinating. So let's talk about it. So once again, before I begin to talk about the plot, I do want to warn you that there will be spoilers. So if you have not seen Flight of the Navigator, pause this podcast. You can go to Disney Plus. It is streaming there. Watch it. Come back and we can resume our conversation. Okay, here we go. The movie opens July 4th, 1978, and we meet David Freeman and his family, David Freeman played by Joey Kramer, and they are at a dog park, and David's family consists of his parents and his little brother, Jeff, who is four years younger. He is eight years old, and they are watching a Frisbee contest where people are throwing Frisbees in the air for their dogs to catch, and then there's a winner for the best catch, and David is trying to get his dog, Bruiser, to catch the Frisbee, but he is not having a very good time. And, of course, David's younger brother, Jeff, keeps making fun of him and his dog, saying that he'll never win the contest. And there are some really great uh, insults that are used at this point and throughout the movie. The biggest insult that they toss back and forth is scuzz bucket, which I'm pretty sure I used a lot of, um, butt face, and then also turkey, which I just really... Why don't we use that anymore? It's like a specific insult, but it's also like weirdly to the point and insulting for someone. To, if someone called me a turkey, I'd be like, excuse me. But there's a lot of, hey, turkey in this movie. Anyway, they leave the dog park. They're headed back to their house. And David and his little brother are just getting on each other's nerves. And, you know, it's that classic 80s thing where the little brother really deserves it because he really is being a jerk. But the parents are always like, getting on to the older kid. So they're like, you know, you leave your brother alone. So, you know, David just feels very misunderstood. So his little brother gets out of the car to go play with some other friends and David goes home with his parents. We find out that David has a little crush on a girl named Jennifer from his neighborhood. We know that he has a crush on her because his dad catches him spying on her with a telescope in his bedroom. <laughs> it's just mildly creepy. But that's, you know, they have a nice little heartwarming conversation. And then... David's mother tells David that she wants him to go and meet his little brother, Jeff, who is coming back from a friend's house. It's getting dark. They're about to go out on their boat for 4th of July to watch the fireworks. And she wants to make sure that Jeff gets home safely. And David does not want to go. He complains, but he goes, he goes ahead and he takes his dog, Bruiser. They go to meet Jeff. And it's at this point, as he's walking through the woods with his, with his dog, that David has a nice little conversation with his dog, <laughs> that I had never noticed before until I rewatched it, where he says to the dog, as a 12-year-old, I just don't know what I want out of life anymore. As a young dog, you might find that hard to understand. And I'm also laughing because this reminds me a lot of me, because about two days ago, I was trying to put something away, and my cat, Anne Shirley, was just really getting on my nerves. She, was, she just kept getting into things. And I looked at her, and I said, 
you are just so frustrating sometimes as a person. I said that to my cat. So I identify with 12-year-old David. (laughs) Doesn't know what he wants out of life anymore. But that might be hard for a young dog to understand. So as David goes to meet Jeff, Jeff jumps out of a tree and surprises him. And David is mad. And Jeff runs off. And then David hears something in this ravine. And so he leans over to look. And then he falls into the ravine. And he hits his head. And you're like, oh, he's unconscious. And then he wakes up and it's a little bit darker. It's been a few hours, you feel like. He climbs out of the ravine. He goes to his house where he's just been, knocks on the door, and a stranger, this woman, opens the door. Now, let's just take a moment and talk about the people that now live in this house. So it's his house, but it's just slightly different. And when he goes inside, there's a woman in there that he doesn't recognize. The house is completely differently differently decorated. And he rushes upstairs to his room, and when he opens his door, there is a man sitting in his room, like in a lounge chair, but the man is wearing this like silk robe, and he's listening to a lot of easy listening music, and it's just unsettling. <laughs> like, it just feels wrong. <laughs> and the guy gets up, and he's like, hey, what's wrong, little man, kind of an attitude. And I feel like saying, I'll tell you what's wrong. You're weird, <laughs> and I don't think you should be in this movie i feel like they are a little sinister so david you know he freaks out and he he collapses on the stairs and he's like i just want my mom and dad i want to go home and the guy looks at his wife you know still wearing his silk robe and he says call the police so now we figure out that david thinks that he had just been gone for a few hours but in our world he has now been gone for eight years So he had been missing for eight years. He's at the police station. He overhears them saying that he had been declared dead, which is pretty heavy for a children's movie. And uh, they're going to call his parents. He looks the same as he did on the missing child posters. Nobody really knows why he looks like a 12-year-old when he should be 20. So the police take him to his parents' new house. His parents come out. He runs outside when he sees his dad. And then... When he sees his parents up close, he sees that they now have gray hair, and David recoils like they have leprosy. (laughs) Like, gray hair? What is happening? He is more upset about his parents being slightly older. I mean, eight years, but, you know, it's not that much. And really, the only makeup that they have done to make them look older is just color their hair a little bit and maybe put a little less makeup on the mom. But David acts like, you know... They are creatures from the Black Lagoon come to get him, and he faints. So David wakes up in the hospital. He doesn't know what's going on. He's very confused. His parents look completely different. No one will tell him what's happening. And then he sees a silhouette of a teenage kid in the doorway of the hospital and come to find out that is Jeff, who was his 8-year-old brother, who is now 16 years old. And guys, this is, the older brother is played, well, the older younger brother, <laughs> um, Jeff is played by Matt Adler as a teenager. And I thought he was super cute too. He's wearing absolutely fantastic 80s clothing, rolled up shirt sleeves. He has a rat tail, <laughs> a bona fide rat tail. I think it was even braided, which makes it even better. And glasses, which I think is really the only thing that kind of ties him to younger Jeff. But I thought he was super cute. Jeff is the only one that will be honest with David. He tells him, you know, dude, you've been missing eight years. 
we've put up wanted posters or missing po- wanted posters. Well, you know, missing posters all over the place. And, you know, we we're so happy that you're back, but you know, this is, this is crazy. And I also want to point out here that Joey Kramer does some really great acting at this scene. He cries so believably. I mean, like he's really crying. It feels like he is an actual terrified child who does not know what's going on. Just top-notch acting. And Chris O'Donnell and Joaquin Phoenix both auditioned for this role. And you can see in this moment why Joey Kramer beat them out. Not that they're bad actors, but he really, really was a good kid actor. And not even just a kid actor. He was a good actor. So at the same time that David is in the hospital, we're introduced to Dr. Faraday, played by Howard Hesseman. And you find out that they have found an actual UFO in this middle of nowhere place. (laughs) And it's made out of chrome. They can't find an entrance, can't find a door. They don't know what's inside of it. And so they move it into these like military barracks um, where NASA is conducting experiments. And they're trying to figure out what's inside this spaceship. And then they start doing tests on David at the same time. And you find out that David is transmitting these weird frequencies directly from his brain to the computer. And they don't know what language he's speaking, but he starts like transmitting the actual picture of the spaceship. So it starts putting pictures of the spaceship. And of course, Dr. Faraday finds out about it and convinces David's parents to let him come to these military barracks. He tells them it'll just be for two days, but they want to run some experiments and figure out where David has been why is he still 12 years old when everybody else has aged eight years? And reluctantly, his parents agreed to do this. So David is basically in this military prison. (laughs) He just is, he's locked in this room all the time. And this is when we meet Sarah Jessica Parker, very young. She bops into the room and she says, I'm Carolyn McAdams. (laughs) I don't know if I've ever actually introduced myself to a child as I'm Amanda Allen, like with my full name, but, but she does. She's Carolyn McAdams. And David has a little crush on her. And to be honest, she, she looks really cool. She has got a ponytail that has a little bit of pink hair, just, you know, and she says, Oh, I went to a concert last night. as as they did in the 80s. And she's wearing one dangly earring, which I tried to copy. I had a pair of sunglass earrings that dangled. And I remember putting one of them in and then not anything in the other ear. And my mom saying, why don't you wear both earrings? And I was like, because that is the way we wear them. And there was also a scene in a Babysitter's Club book where Dawn only wore one pair. She only wore one pair of earrings on one side. And I remember being like, see, that's the style, okay? (laughs) But I just thought she was really awesome. And David has a little bit of a crush on her, like I said. But you also realize that they're technically the same age. Because if he was his actual age, he would be the same age as her. And you kind of get the feeling that that was kind of an avenue they were going to explore. Like maybe when he back, if he goes back to 1978, maybe he's going to meet her. And... One of the things that I did find out in this documentary that we'll talk about in a little bit is that was kind of one of the plans is that he would run into her again, but they scrapped that idea. So, which I think would have been really cool. So I don't know why they didn't do that. But anyway, but David is becoming really disillusioned. He is getting the feeling that they're not going to let him go. They tell him that they now know that what happened to him is that he had traveled 560 light years to this planet called Phalon. 
and it took 2.2 solar hours. So like 4.4 hours total front, you know, round trip. So for him, it was only four hours, but because it was faster than the speed of light, everybody else aged eight years. So four, four years there, four years back, which he doesn't quite understand. But he's also hearing these voices in the middle of the night. Um, there's something that's asking him to come to it. it. It wants him to come to the spaceship. And so finally, in the middle of the night, he wakes up because he hears the voice. And this part always got me because he's shirtless. <laughs> and to buy young self, that was probably the most amount of skin I'd seen on a, like a guy. And I was just scandalized because I was like, he is shirtless. I remember when I was probably eight or nine, maybe younger, we had to spend the night with my Aunt Sue, my sister and I, and her kids, Trevor and Derek, Derek was probably 13, Trevor was probably 12, and they took their shirts off to to sleep. And Holly and I, we were all in a hotel room because we had to stay in a hotel room for some reason. And Holly and I were just like, no, put your shirts back on. We We don't sleep with our shirts off. We didn't have brothers. But they were just like, what are you talking about? We were like, keep your shirts on. And, you know, bless them, they did. <laughs> they put their shirts back on. <laughs> I don't know why we were like that. We were weird preacher's children, but we were like that. But I remember seeing David, Joey Kramer, take his shirt off, and I was like, oh, heavens to Betsy, be still my heart. I'm getting the vapors. Oh, and before I forget, let me backtrack just a bit, because just before he you know, has this whole shirtless scene and he decides to go to the spaceship. He has a conversation with Sarah Jessica Parker and he's like, you don't understand what it's like. You've not been separated from your family and taken to a place where you don't know anyone. And she's like, yes, I have. Every year when my dad got new orders, I had to start all over again. I love that she compares being a military brat to being kidnapped by aliens. And he's like, oh yeah, I guess you're right. So there's that moment too. So David sneaks out of his room. And he makes his way to the spaceship. And when he reaches the spaceship, it opens up and lets him inside. He goes inside and he meets Max, which is this extraterrestrial robot. And Max tells him that he is on a mission from this planet Phalon. And he has been collecting specimens from all different kinds of planets. And he does experiments on them. <laughs> like They say that, like, you know, it's no big deal. Just does experiments on them. And then he takes them back to their planets. But he realized that... He couldn't take David back to his normal time where he was supposed to be because if he did, it was too risky and he might vaporize him. And so we had to take him back to 1986 instead of 1978. And of course, David is understandably a little upset about this. <laughs> and Dr. Faraday shows up and he's like, get out of the spaceship. And he's trying to, there are guns. I mean, there's like all kinds of stuff. There are guns pointed at David. It's very, very tense. And David's just like, get me out of here. So the spaceship takes off. And Max keeps calling him the navigator. And he's like, I'm not the navigator. And finally, Max says, well, you know, we found out that humans only use 10% of their brains. So just as an experiment, we filled up the rest of your 90% with star charts. And David accepts this like it's no big deal. He's just like, oh, okay. So David is using 100% of his brain, 90% of which is filled up with star charts. And Max tells him that he needs him, he needs to transfer the information 
back into uh, the spaceship because the spaceship had crash landed into some electrical wires and had wiped out its star charts. So Max can't get home without the information in David's head. And David's like, is that going to hurt? And he's like, no, we'll do the mind transfer and you'll still have all of the star charts. So David's like, fine. So they do the mind transfer. It's totally successful. And as soon as they do the mind transfer, Max becomes Pee Wee Herman. <laughs> There's no other way to say it. Because he's been this robotic voice kind of this whole time. And then all of a sudden he's like, ha, ha, ha. You know, it's straight up Pee Wee Herman. But um, it's really, really funny. And you get the feeling, too, that Paul Rubens is trying to rein in a little bit of Pee Wee. So it's not all the time like that. But there's the laugh. Absolutely. And it gets really funny from that moment on. There's a whole conversation they have about being an inferior race uh, as far as, you know, humans versus aliens. That's pretty funny. Um, They land with some cows. There's a conversation with the cows. I think the funniest part of the whole movie is when they land at this gas station and uh, the guy, the gas station owner is totally, you know, struck dumb. And this tourist family comes up and they think that the spaceship is like part of the gas station's, you know, shtick. And the kids are playing with it. And then, you know, David runs up the steps and it actually takes off and everybody is shocked. Of course, all the while... Dr. Faraday is trying to get David back and get the spaceship back because this is the biggest, you know, discovery of the 20th century. He he keeps talking about it. And then, you know, he lies to David's parents and tells them that David is fine, that he's there, you know, and not that he's, you know, in a spaceship with an alien life form. (laughs) But Sarah Jessica Parker goes to David's parents' house and she tells them and she gets in trouble for this and she gets caught, but she does tell them what's going on. So, David at one point manages to call his family. And here's another confusing part for me. He doesn't know where the new house is, but yet he knows their phone number. And maybe I'm wrong about this. Like, do we just keep phone numbers? Like landlines, did they just stay the same number even if you moved? I don't know because he knows their phone number, but he doesn't know where he lives or where they live. So he talks to Jeff and he tells him that he's going to come back, that they're, you know, they're in their spaceship and they're going to head back his way. And he needs a a signal because it's going to be nighttime and he needs to be seen. So Jeff figures out that they've got all these old fireworks. So he goes up on the roof and he's going to light up these fireworks to kind of give them a place to land. And so he has a really heartfelt talk with Max because they've become pretty good friends. And, you know, all of the scenes with Max are really cute. Um, there's a Beach Boys music scene, which really made me love the Beach Boys. I remember getting a tape of the Beach Boys because of this movie. They play I Get Around and sing, and I just thought that was the greatest song. And it really is a cute moment in the film. And he just becomes really fast friends with the <laughs> with the alien life form that, you know, kidnapped him and stole eight years of his life (laughs) but they really like each other so max apologizes to him and says i'm so sorry i can't take you back to your own time but at least you'll be safe with your parents so they see the fireworks they come and they're about to they land and david is getting out of the spaceship but he sees all of these police show up and dr faraday is there and he just knows that they're going to take him back to this hospital to these military barracks and that they're never going to let him go he's always going to have to do these experiments and he doesn't have friends there his age anymore and so he tells his parents that he loves them but that this is not his home anymore and he goes back on the spaceship and he tells max to just take him away so max is like you know 
I'll try to take you back to your own time, but you could be vaporized. But David's like, okay. So it's pretty scary. You know, he tells him goodbye. He says he doesn't know if he'll see him again. And um, he's also made friends on the spaceship with another life form whose family, whose planet had been uh, destroyed by a comet. So he's a little orphan alien. He's this little tiny thing. And I can't remember what he's called, but he kind of looks like a, a cross between a hamster and a frog. <laughs> and so he's holding him for the whole you know, rest of this movie. But he has a conversation with Max and, you know, tells him how much he'll miss him. And so then they go into the traveling back in time. And there's lots of lightning and it is kind of spooky. And then David wakes back up in the ravine, just like at the beginning of the movie. He climbs out of the ravine. And just as he's about to knock on his front door, he turns and his whole family is in the boat. They're getting ready to go out for 4th of July. His little brother is eight years old. His parents look the same. He is back in 1978. He's so happy. He gets on the boat, tells his parents that he loves them, even tells his brother Jeff that he loves him. And Jeff is totally surprised. And just as they're about to take off, oh, and Bruiser, the dog is there as well. Just as they're about to leave, out of his backpack comes the little tiny orphaned alien. So Max sent him back with the alien and he looks at Jeff and he says, shh, like, don't tell. And then you see the spaceship streak across the sky and you hear Max say, see you later, navigator, in the Pee Wee Herman voice. And that is the end of the movie. So like I said, it is short and sweet. It's 90 minutes. Very satisfying story. Almost everything just gets tied up in a really nice bow. And you just, you know, you leave it feeling good. It's a good movie. So as I was researching Flight of the Navigator, getting on Wikipedia, looking up information, little stories, I got curious about Joey Kramer and what he was up to now. And so I looked up his Wikipedia page and I was so saddened to see that he had had a really tough life after the movie. He had been arrested several times for mainly petty theft. And then in 2016, he was arrested for robbing a bank in Canada. And he got two years in prison. And I just felt so sad for him. But at the bottom of his Wikipedia page, it said that he had been in a documentary about his life called Life After the Navigator. And so I just searched on my TV to see if it was streaming anywhere, and it is. It's streaming on Tubi for free. And so I watched it, and guys, it was the best documentary. It was so interesting. It had pretty much everybody that had been involved in making the movie, almost all of the actors, um, except for Sarah Jessica Parker and Paul Rubens, but everybody else was in the film. Uh, The producers, the director, even the puppeteers, but it's mainly about... Joey Kramer and how hard he struggled after this movie. And, you know, he had been in a lot of stuff when he was a kid. He started out as an extra and a stunt double for The NeverEnding Story, which is another one of my favorite 80s movies. And then he was also in a movie called Stone Fox that I remember being a, kind of a pretty big deal. We watched it in school um, with Richard Farnsworth when he was a little bit older about sled dogs. But then he was just in a lot of bit things here and there and kind of just, you know, disappeared And they interviewed him, and the documentary starts as he's working his way out of rehab and some halfway homes and things after he had gotten out of prison. And, you know, the judge had been pretty lenient on him because he talks about how he was so addicted to drugs 
and heroin especially, that when he finally robbed this bank, he said he had gotten to a point where he almost wanted to commit a crime that would get him arrested long enough to be safe, which is heartbreaking. He he needed to be forced into rehab where he couldn't leave. So he said it was either he was going to rob this bank and it would work and he would get the money and then he would go buy as much heroin as he could and kill himself or he would get arrested and be forced to get off drugs. And it really <laughs> just drives this point home that I think a lot of us forget is that opiate addiction is such a prevalent disease. And I think that we sometimes think about people who struggle with drugs as being weak or being less than, or, you know, it's, it's not, it's not a real disease. It's an addiction, but it is a disease and it is a heartbreaking disease. And watching people struggle where they just are not even themselves anymore. And that's one of the things that Joey Kramer said in this documentary is that he felt like he just wasn't himself. Like the people that knew him, he felt like they didn't recognize him. And, you know, he's still so good looking. He's so talented. He's a great musician. He's smart. He's well-spoken. And it was really heartwarming to see him come out of this. And, you know, I looked him up on Instagram just to see, and he still is doing great. But he said something at the end of the documentary that just made me tear up because he said, it's never too late to become the people we should have been. And isn't that the truth? I mean, I've said this before. It's never too late to start anything. A lot of times I think we think getting older means that our chances are over and they're just not. And he said it so beautifully. It's just, it's never too late to become the person you were meant to be. It's just not. And so you should watch this too. If you like Flight of the Navigator, this documentary was just really heartwarming and really interesting. But I just, you know, wish all the best for this guy because I feel like he just deserves a second chance, just like all of us do. All right, guys, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for hanging out with me again this week. I had so much fun watching this movie. If you want to watch it, Flight of the Navigator is on Disney+. Plus. It's streaming there. And then if you want to watch the documentary, Life After the Navigator, it's also streaming on Tubi. Thank you so much again, as always, for following and subscribing and telling your friends and family. It means so much to me. And if you get a chance to get on Apple Podcasts and leave a review... That would also mean the world to me. It really just helps people find the podcast. And if you'd like to find me on Instagram, it's super easy. I am at Resting Church Face. I hope you have a fantastic week and let's get together again soon.